So if you look at something like Bitcoin for a second, you may say, wow, Bitcoin is really depressed. It's gone from a you know, 68,000 all-time high to now, you know, 20 or 21,000, right? Um, but does that necessarily mean that, you know, the crypto or that Bitcoin is, you know, as third, a third as healthy as it once was a few months ago? And the price is not always going to be the thing that indicates that or, or that kind of dictates that. Instead, we can look at metrics that underlie the network. How many wallet addresses are there? How much transactional activity is taking place on the network? Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. I'm on a mission to help entrepreneurs advance society, and this podcast is a part of that effort. On today's episode, I sit down with the CEO of Grayscale Investments, Michael Sunshine. Now, Grayscale is one of the biggest heavyweights in the crypto investing world. They offer investors direct access to crypto. Their premier product is the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, a long Bitcoin offering. That gives everyone access to Bitcoin the same way they would buy a normal stock. You can simply enter a ticker in a brokerage account. This is especially significant for folks who don't have access to a lot of the crypto tools out there, uh, as this is a way not only to buy crypto through a traditional brokerage account, but it's also a way to buy crypto in a retirement account, which is kind of significant because it's very hard to buy assets outside of the public stock market um, through traditional retirement accounts. It's one of the big problems out there in the market. With over $20 billion of worth of assets in crypto across 17 different investment vehicles, they have facilitated a tremendous amount of the interaction that's happening right now in the crypto market. And Michael is sitting at the center of this. The crypto market at the time we're recording this is currently down. Market's taking a pretty big hit, seemingly in line with the state of the broader, broader stock market. And this is a great opportunity for Michael to share his perspective on the market and the future of crypto applications. I hope you enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Bowery Legal. Bowery Legal provides a complete range of legal services to high growth companies. They do everything from formation, employment, partnership agreements, stock grants, corporate matters, and venture capital and debt financings. If you're interested in learning more, visit BoweryLegal.com. Michael, welcome, man. Thanks for being here today. It is great to be here. Thank you for having me. Cool. Uh, do you want to start off by giving us a little overview of Grayscale? Sure. Uh, where to begin? Uh, so we're we're eight years into uh, the Grayscale story. Uh, we go back to 2013 when our founder, a gentleman named Barry Silbert, had the foresight and really the vision to realize that you know Bitcoin was going to transform the world. That. Bitcoin and digital currencies more broadly were going to become a bona fide asset class and thought that we should set out on a path to create an asset manager that would make investing in Bitcoin and other digital currencies accessible, familiar and safe and secure for the investment community. And um, we haven't wavered in that mission over the last eight years. You know, today, Grayscale is the largest digital currency asset manager in the world. Uh, we manage about $20 billion of assets uh, across a family of 17 different investment vehicles. And I think really when you take a big step back and you kind of examine Grayscale, uh, you've seen so many other asset managers be that entry point or that family of access products, right? Whether it's, uh, you know, 
fixed income products, whether it's, you know, could be sector specific products like healthcare or tech or energy, um, or in some instances, it's certain geographies around the world, kind of borrowing from that model, the grayscale business really is predicated on realizing that digital currencies aren't that easy from the average investor to access. Where do you buy them? How do you transfer them? How do you store them? How do you safe keep them? And so born out of those challenges has been this ever expanding suite of investment vehicles. And we've really thankfully had the good fortune of being many investors for, you know, first experience with uh, investing in crypto. So that's us. That's awesome. Thank you. When you mentioned the 17 vehicles, what are those? Are those each holding a different type of asset? When you say that, what does that mean? Well, so I think the earlier days of Grayscale were characterized by you know, providing direct access to individual digital assets. So we have a long only Bitcoin fund that many people know us for, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust. It trades under ticker GBTC. We have an Ethereum product. Um, we have a Litecoin product, so on and so forth. And over time, we not only continue to build out a product family where there was a singular digital asset underpinning each product, but we also started to develop thematic or basket products where multiple digital assets would underpin a given product. So today we have a large cap vehicle, large cap digital assets. We have a DeFi fund that holds a basket of DeFi protocols. We have a smart contract platform fund that holds all the smart contract protocols. So these are you know, some of the other types of vehicles we've also been building at Grayscale. And really now investors have this ever expanding menu, if you will, to figure out how to build a crypto portfolio and what weights and what sizes. Um, okay, that's that's helpful. Is one of the 17 kind of far and away the marquee product for you guys? I know the mm -hmm. Bitcoin trust is pretty famous. Is that kind yeah, of represent the majority of the assets or is it? Yeah, you, you know, it's, it's tough to really put them all on an equal footing. They've all come to market at different times in different market cycles and uh, have obviously had different, you know, track records, uh, you know, in front of investors. So the, the flagship fund is, in fact, what you guessed, the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust, GBTC. That is now the world's largest Bitcoin investment vehicle. Um, it holds about 3.4% of all Bitcoin outstanding and um, is, uh, you know, kind of the not just the flagship product, but is one of the largest areas of focus for, for the Grayscale team these days. And how are the fees structured for something like this? Are investors paying kind of a typical fund structure of a two and 20, which we see in venture capital, or is it more of a, a mutual fund type fee construct? How does it work? Well, so there's definitely no performance fees, uh, like a two and 20 model, like you would see for a hedge fund. Uh, instead, all of the funds have uh, management fees that are all encompassing of our costs to run and operate the vehicles. So whether it's custodianship or auditing or accounting or advertising, all of the expenses that go into them um, are all in, in wrapped in, in management fees that underpin each product. Um, some products like the Grayscale Bitcoin Coin Trust have a 2% annual fee. Um, other products carry a 2.5% fee. Got it. That makes sense. So what's the motivation for someone to invest in one of these trusts versus buying the underlying assets directly? Why, why not just go on an exchange like a Coinbase or a Kraken and buy Bitcoin? 
And listen, you know, Marco, a lot of people do that. A lot of people actually do both. Um, what we often find, though, is that investors typically, um, if they are, in fact, already an investor, have a brokerage account, they may have a retirement account, they may have a 401k. And if in those accounts, they already have exposure to Google or Apple or Netflix or ETFs or municipal bonds, whatever it may be, the Grayscale product family lets you punch in a ticker symbol and add Bitcoin exposure right alongside those investments or punch in a ticker symbol and add Ethereum exposure right alongside those other investments you already have. So there's certainly an ease of access um, that I think comes with the Grayscale products. And then just kind of belaboring the point on retirement funds or tax advantage funds, you know, those counts, IRAs, 401ks, Roth IRAs, those are really difficult, if not almost entirely prohibitive to buy digital currencies inside of, which a lot of people want to. They have a long term conviction for these investments. And so to be able to do that because the Grayscale products carry a ticker symbol also has allowed a lot of people to invest in these assets for the long term for retirement. That makes total sense. Uh, in particular, the the retirement argument, right? The uh, the retirement vehicles sure. are very difficult to navigate and get any type of alternative assets in there. Um, that's very helpful. Uh, is the Who's the customer base for this? Is it typically retail investors, folks like ourselves with brokerage accounts and, and other? Or are, I, I was under the impression earlier on you guys were selling more into large institutions. So, so it actually really runs the gamut. Um, you know, today, um, you know, I would say it's increasingly more and more difficult to figure out who the end customers are in products when they're trading on a national, you know, when they're trading on, on public markets, you certainly can get data as to which firms hold shares and how many shareholders there are, but the actual demographics on the investors themselves get harder and harder to get a hold of. So Grayscale products today are invested in by retail investors. Um, these can be folks that buy as little as one share. They may hold the investment for one day or they may hold the investment in perpetuity. Grayscale investors are also ETF funds um, that want Bitcoin or want Ethereum exposure, and thus they can buy a Grayscale product inside of their ETF alongside the other investments they're managing. Same goes for mutual funds. Uh, Grayscale investors are also hedge funds. They're also registered investment advisors. They're also pensions and endowments. I mean, everywhere you cut across the investment landscape, you are going to find Grayscale investors um, and you are going to see the value proposition to owning crypto exposure in the form of a security with the comfort that comes from an offering memorandum and audited financial statements and tax reporting. Um, all of that is going to have varying degrees of value to different investor types. Um, and that's why our investor base is so varied and not just in the US, you know, globally as well. This is fascinating. Uh, you know, I've known Barry, uh, Silver, the founder of Grayscale for a long time. Uh, his background is a natural trajectory to grayscale, right? He's been one of the pioneers in the fintech space before crypto even became kind of a mainstream thing on the scene. Um, he's been out innovating and tinkering. He did second market before this. Uh, so when he got into the digital currency group and eventually launched grayscale, it just seemed like the natural next step for him. What was your journey? How did you, you know, there's, there's no real path from college 
to uh, <laughs> crypto these days. It's too new. No, so there how did is. You land there here? is. Yeah, tell me. Um, so these days, there is a natural path from college to crypto. Um, that is is certainly happening. I think a lot of folks that are studying economics, finance, marketing, comms, you name it, um, are rethinking whether or not investment banking or Wall Street careers are the first place that they should be going after they receive an undergraduate education. And some of them are joining companies like Grayscale and others. Um, my path was uh, a little different and uh, a lot earlier than, um, I guess, the more established nature of crypto today than it was back then. So for me, I started my career on Wall Street. Um, I worked at three different bulge bracket banks. Um, and with each successive move, just learned so, so much. I mean, how to deal with customers, understanding rules and regulations, the entire underpinnings of the financial system and the way that value moves, looking at everything from equities to fixed income to ETFs to mutual funds to structured notes to options to commodities to credit default swaps, wires, journals. I mean, the list goes on and on. And um, I think for me, I was um, at the time back in business school and I realized, I think based on my classmates that I think we're all pursuing their MBAs for different reasons. They were entrepreneurs starting new businesses. They were uh, getting an MBA to further arm themselves to get ready to take over a family business. I mean, all kinds of reasons. But I was kind of the odd man out, um, if you will, right? Someone that had more of this kind of traditional path on Wall Street and um, had kind of a very narrow, I guess, uh, idea of what success meant or what success looked like. And um, it was at that time that I think I realized that I should look for something different, something where my output was going to have a lot more meaningful impact on the business that I was a part of, right? I could be at JP Morgan and I could have a fantastic day. I could generate a ton of commissions and do a ton of trades, et cetera. But I had no real impact on what that actually did for the overall JP Morgan enterprise versus deciding to go to a smaller shop where that level of attribution would be much more lively for better or for worse, right? And um, I think when I decided I was going to leave and look at other opportunities, I, I'll be honest, I wasn't looking for crypto. Um, you know, crypto was something that was, I think, flashing on CNBC from time to time. And, and just to contextualize it, like this was the winter of 2013. Um, Bitcoin had just crashed. And I say crashed somewhat jokingly from uh, 1200 US dollars a coin to about 800 and good opportunities came my way. Um, family offices, hedge funds, things like that. And um, somewhere through LinkedIn, actually, and this is not like a LinkedIn advertisement or anything like that, but somewhere along the way through LinkedIn, um, I got connected to an opportunity at Second Market, Barry's old firm. And I came in I actually almost skipped the interview because I'd never heard of them, to be honest. But I went, had a good chat with everyone. I then was asked to meet Barry, knew nothing about the man or all the accolades and awards that had been bestowed upon him as a successful entrepreneur. And I will never forget, um, he told me that Bitcoin was going to change the world. 
And honestly, I cannot think of another time in my life, personal, professional settings, where any adult ever used that word choice, that something was gonna change the world, right? I had never been the recipient of that word choice before. And it was so impactful um, that as Barry and I continued talking, um, he asked me really to come in and lead the sales effort for our one product then, which was the Bitcoin Trust. And it had about $60 million of assets at the time. It had been running for about three months or so. And, um, you know, it was just such a wonderful, immediate kind of, you know, connectivity between the two of us that he kind of said, Michael, come help me build something. And I promise you, you won't regret it. And um, if it ever feels like it's it's going off the rails, like you'll leave and, and you'll go back to a bank or you'll go to a hedge fund or you'll go do something else. Those opportunities will be there for you. And, uh, you know, eight plus years later, um, Bitcoin's gone through all kinds of cycles. Crypto's gone through all kinds of cycles. I haven't wavered in my commitment to Barry and building out the Grayscale business and um, have just continued to take on more responsibility, never really looking back once over the last eight and a half years. And um, then was blessed with the uh, good fortune um, to take over Grayscale as CEO about a year and a half ago. Um, and truthfully, I think we're just getting started. <laughs> um, That's you know, exciting. Eight and a half years later, I think we're just getting started. Um, did you know Barry before? I noticed you guys are both Emory folks. Did you go to college together at all or overlap there? No, we did not overlap. But interestingly, my naivete and lack of preparedness in meeting Barry, that fortunate day I did back in, in the winter of 2013, as I was being brought into his office to meet with him, um, his chief of staff said, looked at my resume and said, oh, Michael, you you went to Emory. So so did Barry and um, mm -hmm. and then kind of handed me off to him. And so that certainly was a um, a kind of common point uh, that we were able to, I guess, bond over. But uh, no, no, no prior knowledge of each other. Very helpful. Thanks for a little bit of background there. Um, just want to flip back over to crypto for a bit. Sure. What's the case for buying crypto long term? Right. I've seen a lot of fund managers come through. Everyone's uh, there's lots of different ways to kind of divine uh, the business case for why it should exist. Why people should own it and hold it. Yeah. What story kind of narrative sings with you guys? How do you, how do you get comfortable that this is the going to continue to create value and sustain? Yeah, I think it's relatively simple. Um, you know, Bitcoin is going to change the world. There's a lot of impatience around that today that perhaps it hasn't fulfilled a world changing kind of proposition. That being said, I think that Bitcoin is ultimately the springboard to financial inclusion um, and going to help much of the world leapfrog the traditional banking system. Today, you know, Bitcoin, though, is mostly being used either as a speculative and diversifying investment um, and or as a digital gold, digital store of value, um, you know, and um, and even if Bitcoin doesn't move to ultimately become something more killer than that, um, that even of itself, I would say, is a very, very successful case for Bitcoin. Right. Um, you know, Bitcoin has such interesting attributes, the finite supply. 
um, you know, the predictable um, supply rate, uh, its divisibility, um, its portability. I mean, it has allowed us as a society really for the first time to glom on to something that is a one, you know, a global consensus mechanism, unlike we've ever had before. And so there's value to attribute to that in and of itself. Um, but two, I think it's caused us to realize more than ever that money and value is what society dictates it is. And so the fact that, you know, for the past however many, you know, decades or, or centuries, we've relied on our governments to tell us what money is, that's not always been the case. And um, I think as we're moving into this global, you know, digitally connected world, the the time has come and probably passed already why it is that information moves seamlessly around the world instantaneously and for free, but somehow the movement of value has not kept a pace with that. And um, and that's one of the, the I think, the biggest reasons why um, you're seeing so much excitement, so much development here. Can you talk about the financial inclusion piece? We're, we're starting to see countries pick up cryptocurrencies um, as state currencies. And I think this is being done in a few different ways. It's being done where yeah. states are creating their own digital currency, which I don't know how different that fundamentally is from a traditional currency. And we're seeing it where states yeah, I mean, are adopting these shared currencies. It's too early to say. I mean, I've never been a bigger believer in in the idea that Bitcoin is here to stay. Um, whether or not Bitcoin continues to get adopted by nation states like El Salvador and others that are, you know, um, I think when El Salvador did that um, earlier, I guess this year, uh, you saw within a matter of weeks, there were more citizens in El Salvador that had Bitcoin wallets than had bank accounts in a matter of weeks. I mean, the the idea of drawing people into a connected financial system is very powerful. It allows people to, you know, spend money, save money, finance businesses, finance educations, pass money to the next generation. You know, the list goes on and on. I think in the developed world, we sometimes take for granted how much financial services access we actually have at our disposal. And when um, you look around the world, you know, it's certainly too early to say whether it will be Bitcoin or it will be something else or some evolved version of Bitcoin over time. But I think certainly the the idea of non-sovereign money um, as something people want to own, whether it's because it's diversifying or it's because they're living in a world where their purchasing power is rapidly being eroded by inflation or, or government, you know, poor oversight of, of fiat currency. Um, the idea of non-sovereign value, the non-sovereign asset idea is an idea that's here to stay. And I don't think that's going to get kind of put back in the bottle. You know, the genie is out. Why, why do a lot of why, why are bank accounts and financial inclusion? Why is that not more ubiquitous? I think to the executive class of business folks in the U.S. who are probably the folks who are going to listen to this, we just assume everyone has a bank account. But the reality is the data doesn't support that. Why is it Correct. less accessible? Um, why is this a problem to begin with? So it depends what part of the world you're looking at. I believe the latest statistic is that about half the world's adult population does not have access to basic financial services. 
um, meaning there is no bank branch on their corner. Um, there is no, you know, snapping a photo on their smartphone of a check and having it, you know, automatically deposit into their, their bank account. Um, there is no financing the purchase of a home or, or taking out a loan to finance an education, et cetera. Um, and that's simply because some parts of the world from a profitability standpoint just don't make sense for a lot of financial institutions to set up shop um, in a digital format or in a brick and mortar format. Um, some of that is also borne by the lack of not just infrastructure, but a very important piece of infrastructure, which is still even lacking in the U.S. in many spots, which is also not a conversation we talk about often. But the Internet, the Internet is not accessible everywhere in the United States, which is wild. Right. Um, and so what you've started to see is that. Whereas in the in the if you want to analogize it, Mark, in in the developed world, landlines came along um, and suddenly everyone had, you know, the ability to connect and talk and um, communicate and the infrastructure and the capital was never there to set up landlines in the developing world. And when cell phone technology came along, it took off much more rapidly in the developing world than it did in the developed world because we had already had communications. But in the developing world, we popped up cell phone towers. We handed out a piece of plastic to everybody and suddenly everybody was communicating for the first time. Um, and so I think in a similar fashion, because the tools you need to move value like Bitcoin um, are as simple as a feature phone SMSing from one you know, recipient to another, um, you could see a scenario where the advent of cell phone technology and its adoption you know, could somewhat you know, create a similar roadmap for the way in which Bitcoin and non-sovereign assets get adopted and used in other parts of the world before they really cross a chasm in the developed world um, as being something other than a digital gold, digital store of value, or you know anything um, you know beyond that, or a, a speculative asset. Yeah, I mean, and right now we all understand the case. It's a store of value and speculative asset, and I think we were all hoping it didn't correlate with the public markets, but it seems to. Um, but the idea that people are being able to use a currency uh, with limited technology and limited resources is pretty powerful. What do you think the next yeah. generation of um, use case is going to be it, uh, and kind of outside of the store of value. Do, do you think this will be more integrated in the way we transact, or do you think that's TBD or far fetched at this point? What's your take? I don't know that I'm going to go buy a you know a beverage um, at my local you know kind of corner store with Bitcoin because what I have to available to me today to do so works pretty well. Um, I don't necessarily know that it's going to replace or displace that anytime soon. I think a lot of the additional use cases you're going to start seeing are going to be the movements of, of value um, and, and movements of other assets in scenarios where perhaps sender and receiver might not even know that Bitcoin is the rails on which that asset is moved. A lot of that's going to be abstracted away. Um, and so mm. I'm kind of excited for us to only grow further attached to this global consensus mechanism we have that we've never had before um, and what that can do to the movement of assets uh, globally. I think that's that's a killer use case for crypto and Bitcoin specifically. A lot of people have talked about how Bitcoin's actual underlying technology isn't efficient enough to support high volume of transactions fast, rapidly. 
Yeah. You know, and that, that's been the case made for Ethereum or these other altcoins that have come out. Um, what's your take on the underlying technology? Are we on trajectory where Bitcoin could become the rails, as you put it, or is Bitcoin going to be displaced when you get to that level? I think there's a lot of smart people working on scaling solutions that make the transactional throughput on the Bitcoin network a lot higher than it is today. Arguably, the fact that there are so many transactions transpiring today um, I look at it as a sign of Bitcoin success, right? If if there's so much activity that the network's getting clogged, um, then that means Bitcoin's been much more successful than it was ever even originally conceived to be. Um, over time, I think we will find ways to make the network more efficient. So there are you know new solutions out there like Lightning and others that are looking to you know increase um, transactional throughput and the efficiency of the network. But we also have to make sure we, again, have patience, right? Then Bitcoin as an asset has only been around, you know, a little over a decade. Um, and so the fact that this is where we are, we have developed markets, healthy markets, derivatives, you name it. And um, we haven't yet cracked that nut, um, I think smells more like opportunity than it does um, kind of a, a ultimately prohibitive aspect of Bitcoin as we know it. Some managers I've seen come through the doors have talked about the underlying technologies as signal for the potential value. And I think what their arguments are is look, hey, if this crypto asset is really functioning as a form of rails, it means applications will be built on it. It'll get more integrated into the ecosystem. Therefore, it'll transact more. There'll be more demand. And you'll see the price of the asset go up, ultimately. Is there uh, a target allocation that you think makes sense? given where technologies are in the various crypto sectors? It, you know, it, well, it, do, think, do you think, think it's just Bitcoin, Ethereum, or the lead? Or wh where would you have people place money? I think there's two pieces to that. I think number one, the same way that there are myriad of investment opportunities available under the sun today, we don't all touch or invest in every single one of them because well, not every single one of them is appropriate for us, right? Um, and I think along those same lines, that also means that just because crypto is now an investment opportunity available um, doesn't mean it's appropriate for everybody, right? The people we tend to see allocating to crypto have a you know stronger stomach for volatility, um, tend to have longer time horizons for their investments. They don't have needs for income or, or things like that in the near term. And we tend to tell people that you should think about this akin to investing in early stage technology. It hasn't been around that long. There's a lot of unanswered questions as the ecosystem continues to grow and mature. Smaller allocations probably look like 40 to 50 basis points. More aggressive allocations look more like four to 500 basis points. And people usually scale into those over time. I think diversification within crypto is something that has been gaining momentum as well. Whereas most people were probably only investing in Bitcoin and Ethereum. I think nowadays there's an appreciation for different subsets or different subcategories of crypto. Um, and so people like the idea of investing in DeFi and broadly investing in DeFi or um, investing in you know, privacy tokens. And I think what's been fascinating about the investor behavior is the fact that there's now appreciation for these subcategories or sub themes, the same way we might slice and dice the equity universe against 
you know, energy, healthcare, commodity, you know, technology, financials, you name it. Investors are now starting to do that with crypto as well. Um, and thinking about that in the context of building a crypto allocation. What, what's your view on, I mean, you're an ex Wall Street guy. What's Wall Street missing about this? It seems like they've got one toe in it, but haven't even put a foot in yet. What are they not seeing? What's the, the opportunity for Wall Street? I think that, you know, my my assumption that is over time, if there is an asset that can be traded and spreads can be made on it, if there's an asset that can be custodied and there's fees that can be charged on it, if there's products that can be built on it, you know, which the answer is yes to all of what I just mentioned, then Wall Street is only going to get further involved. Right. The issue is that many of the banks and financial services firms, whether they're insurance companies, um, credit card processors, you name it, they are all, um, you know, one, focused on their legacy businesses. That's their bread and butter. These tend to be organizations, and now I'm generalizing, that are not terribly innovative. They don't move that quickly. Um, their risk appetite usually isn't that large. And unfortunately, many of the people that work on these types of projects within these types of firms tend to get frustrated with the lack of innovation and agility and tend to leave and you know, come to companies like Grayscale and others, right? And so when you think about the confluence of factors I just mentioned, Wall Street is in. Wall Street is you know, trading crypto derivatives like Bitcoin futures and Ethereum futures. And they're making investments in crypto custodians and you know, paying attention to crypto exchanges and licensing data and you know, wanting to stay you know, plugged in because ultimately their clients are allocating capital to this asset class. And if they're not providing the products and services to allow their clients to participate in this asset class, then someone else is getting that capital and someone else is getting those fees. So over time, you will see more and more of these firms playing catch up, um, but they will just have nowhere near the agility or the speed that you're seeing in crypto native companies in terms of building out products and services. Got it. This particular moment in time might be an interesting opportunity for people to kind of entrench and prepare. Um, feels like we're entering another crypto winter. Uh, what is your take on the current state of the crypto market and where we're headed? Yeah, I think a lot of people have been calling for a crypto winter. We may, in fact, be, you know, in a crypto winter. Um, it's a little early to say. Um, I think what we're seeing now is a, you know, pretty healthy pullback in crypto prices. A lot of that is not just specific to crypto. Yes, we've had some one-off events like, you know, the collapse of Terra and, um, you know, certainly seeing some folks employ too much leverage, grow too quickly, things of that nature. Um, but we were in many ways kind of due for a correction, kind of due for a pullback. You know, there was there was too much kind of irrational exuberance in some pockets of the crypto ecosystem. And so resetting that um, and seeing some consolidation over the long term will be good for crypto. I've seen this a couple of times in the last eight years. It always you know, didn't present itself in the form of a stable coin collapsing or, you know, a broad based sell off of all risk assets against rising rates or inflation like we're seeing now. At other times, it was 
regulation or, you know, announcements from a state actor or a hack or a theft at a major crypto player, you know, things of that nature. Um, and so each time we've kind of seen the ecosystem get challenged this way, we have seen it or I've seen it grow stronger. Lessons get learned. It builds, it rebuilds. It doesn't repeat mistakes of the past. And as a whole, the ecosystem just continues to get stronger. And I expect the exact same thing with where we are today. What, what do you, is, is this a market opportunity to be buying more because it's low? Or do you think this is a, hey, something might be going on that's fuzzy in the industry and we should all take a minute and breathe? I, you know, I think what we hear from investors is that truthfully, any pullback in prices is something that they see as being opportunistic. Um, I'm never going to be one to call bottoms. I'm never going to be able to call tops. You know, I think most people that really, again, have that long term view for crypto are going to be folks that really, you know, average down, you know, dollar cost average into their positions over time um, and need to ensure that the capital they're putting to work is not anything that they have any near term needs for. There's been a lot of people who have tried to, you know, as we're thinking about where the right pricing is, I mean, what we're really talking about is some sort of inherent value. And I've seen folks over time try to create models that imply that a Bitcoin is worth $200,000 today. Is there anything that you've seen that provides real signal about where all this is going long term? Any version of inherent or implied value based on supply and demand? You know, honestly, I don't know that I have a price target in mind. Grayscale certainly doesn't have a price target that we've you know, published or even talked about internally. I think one of the things that we do focus on and, and that's important for folks to take away is that the price of these assets is not always going to be the most readily available indicator of the strength of a given protocol or ecosystem. What we have at our disposal in crypto are attributes and data that's available to us that is not necessarily available when you look at other commodities um, or other assets for that matter. So if you look at something like Bitcoin for a second, you may say, wow, Bitcoin is really depressed. It's gone from a you know, 68,000 all-time high to now you know, 20 or 21,000, right? Um, but does that necessarily mean that, you know, the crypto or that Bitcoin is, you know, as third, a third as healthy as it once was a few months ago? And the price is not always going to be the thing that indicates that or, or that kind of dictates that. Instead, we can look at metrics that underlie the network. How many wallet addresses are there? How much transactional activity is taking place on the network? What's the average transaction size? What's the average life of each of the coins on the network? When was the last time they moved? Do we tend to see that coins are remaining dormant and thus that's an indicator that people are holding? Or are coins moving around the network more or moving to exchanges, which would inherently potentially set them up to eventually be sold? You know, these are the types of underlying metrics that I think are important to focus on versus just focusing on price as really the you know, flashing indicator of where we are. Last question for you. As we're looking ahead, what are you most excited about right now? I am excited about two things. Um, first is consolidation. So I think the environment we find ourselves in is going to lead to some interesting M&A activity, some interesting folks banding together, some folks getting acquired, some folks getting absorbed um, because you know we don't inherently need 
as many custodians, as many exchanges, as many, you know, you, you know, fill in the blank. And so I think that's going to be healthy for crypto. Um, I think number two, you're also going to see the build out of a lot of infrastructure or what I call kind of plumbing. So what's been happening in crypto over the last few years has been a big focus on building our own infrastructure, our own trading systems, our own order management books, our um, order management systems, our own indices, our own tools, our own analytics, our own uh, tax lot reporting softwares. And when that begins to become connected to the legacy financial system, to your point about Wall Street, et cetera, you're going to see the pipes allow for a lot more capital um, and a lot more you know, investors to enter this space and bring the opportunity of crypto to their portfolios. And I think we're in a unique period of time where you're going to start to see some of that connectivity begin to get bridged. And um, I think it's, it's long overdue and it's going to be a really exciting part of the next chapter um, as we continue to build the ecosystem. Michael, thanks for your time. Thanks for being on. Thank you. This was very cool. It's really interesting to hear Michael's perspective because he's sitting at the center of the storm that's happening in crypto right now. Um, the ups and downs, all the exchanges in the market, he's hearing a lot of the perspectives uh, and was able to synthesize a lot of it for us today. Uh, so I'm very grateful he was on. If you like what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review, and you can feel free to share with a friend. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe in all the usual places, such as YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis. <laughs>